first Bible reading comes from Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The second reading is from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. morning. Welcome back to Dorothy. You have your Bible. We're going to be looking at a few different passages this morning. So it's good to have them open and ready. We had a couple of reading of readings already. One was Psalm 130, which some people call a Reformation Psalm. We'll see why that's relevant shortly, because it's one of the readings that keeps reminding us about how we're saved as a gift, how we're saved by grace. But join with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that on this day we can gather as your people. Lord, there is nothing in us that makes us worthy. Lord, we see all the faults and flaws, Lord, in our lives. But we thank you so much for your kindness, for your amazing grace that you should forgive us so freely. And so, Lord, please remind us afresh this morning of just how wonderful that gospel is. Please, Lord, show us if we're starting to let go of it, we're putting our hope elsewhere other than Christ. And so, Father, please, build us up with real conviction, with real joy and certainty 
for the salvation that we have in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I was in Bunnings the other day and noticed Christmas decorations were already out. But that was at the same time, if you noticed, decorations for another celebration are out at this time. Halloween. That's, that's going to happen this Saturday, this coming Saturday, the 31st of October. When I was growing up, that meant nothing the 31st of October. It's just the last day of October, the day before the first day of November. But now kids are growing up and they're actually looking forward to the 31st of October. It's taking on a whole new meaning. It's Halloween. In fact, where Brian and I used to live down in Sydney, it was quite noticeable that leading up to Halloween and during Halloween, there were more decorations out visibly to see than at Christmas time. People are much more ready and keen to celebrate things of darkness, essentially. There's Halloween's full of devils and demons, witches and wizards, ghouls and ghosts, blood and gore. They're all the things that make it exciting. Things which the Bible said will ultimately be placed in the lake of fire. Far more excited about those things than celebrating the light of Christmas, the incarnation of the Holy One of God, born as a man coming into the world that we might be saved from our sins. People don't want to hear about that. But they get excited about Halloween. And there are some Christians who want to argue that there's nothing wrong with celebrating Halloween. Even though, even though it has much to do with witches and demons, the Bible says we have nothing to do with those things, let alone revel and celebrate them. And those who have actually been saved out of the occult or lives of witchcraft and Satanism actually encourage us not to go near that festival and that celebration. And so this morning, I want to remind us as we move towards Saturday, the 31st of October, when you might have some little kids come knocking on your door, trick or treating, that there's something else that we can remember. Something that is far more wholesome, something that is extraordinarily God-glorifying and that will fill your heart with gladness and thanksgiving on the 31st of October. So rather than remembering the dead and things associated with the dead, we need to consider another 31st of October, going back actually 503 years to a place in the world called Germany, to a town called Wittenberg. Something happened on October the 31st, 1517. And that approximately 500 years ago, a German Augustinian monk aged 34, by the name of Martin Luther, his picture here on the screen, so he's a bit older, went to a big wooden door. It's the next picture of, of the castle church in Wittenberg. And he nailed a document to that door, which we call today and is referred to as Luther's 95 Theses. The next picture actually shows if you go to Germany today, that's the church, it's still there. Where the red patch is, is where the door is that Martin Luther 500 years ago walked up to. And he nailed 95 theses to that door. But he didn't put the heading, my 95 theses. His actual title of what he nailed to that door is the disputation of Martin Luther on the power and efficacy of indulgences. The disputation of Martin Luther on the power and efficacy of indulgences. Now, what's all that about? Why did he bother doing that? 
Well, first, let's step back into the context in which Martin Luther was. So, firstly, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, was the dominant church across the Western world, had since the 12th century said that after someone dies, even though you've confessed your sins and God has said you're not guilty, your guilt's been removed, you must still go to a physical place called purgatory. And there in purgatory, you are purged through the purgatorial fires. And why is that necessary? So that you can attain the level of holiness necessary to get into heaven. So the Roman Catholic Church taught the wicked would go to a place of the wicked. Only some, very few, when you die, would go to heaven. They are those who are especially righteous, such as Mary and the saints, or those they call saints. But the majority, the majority of those who have actually confessed their sins go to a third place called purgatory, so as to become sufficiently righteous, so as to get into heaven. Now, this is very relevant for us today because the Catholic Church still teaches essentially the same things. And so we need to listen to what Luther is responding to that we might have our minds thinking correctly. Today in the Catholic Church, it's a bit vague about how long you must endure the fires of purgatory. But in Martin Luther's day, it was argued that the average Christian, so if we're average Christians, whatever that means, could expect to expend at least 1,000 to 2,000 years in the fires being purged in purgatory before we would be righteous enough to go to heaven. Today, though, it's simply, simply left unstated and it says only God knows. But we do know, the church, Catholic Church says, the punishment in purgatory will be directly proportional to the severity of the sins you have committed in your life. But there's good news that the Roman Catholic Church would teach and still teaches of indulgences. And that's that word that Luther nailed. His 95 theses were about indulgences. What's that? An indulgence is a grant given by the Roman Catholic Church that will lessen or remove the need for you to go to purgatory, lessen your time or actually remove the need for you to go there at all. So you can either get a partial reduction on having to be fired in purgatory. Or if you're lucky, you get a full pardon and you go straight to heaven. So if you want to, you can try and earn these indulgences and the Catholic Church will tell you what you need to do. But how would an indulgence work? Because the Roman Catholic Church also talks, teaches something called the treasury of merit. That's a super abundant store of righteousness and good works. And it's been filled. And who's filled this extra store up? Well, Jesus has, but Mary too, because the church says she was without sin. And all those who they call saints, because they actually teach they did more than they needed to. They became more than righteous so as to get into heaven. So if getting to heaven required this much righteousness, these saints did more. So what do we do with the excess? We put that in the store, the treasury of merit. Mary, she was without sin. We get all her excess. And Christ, he was infinitely righteous, which means the store now has an infinite depth. It's never going to run out. 
And it's the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, that has the power, the authority to distribute what's in the treasury of merit. So obtaining an indulgence through penance or other things means you get to share in some of the merit so that you don't have to be fired for as long from the fires of purgatory because their righteousness will get you into heaven fast. So you could obtain these merits, these indulgences, through doing certain works or even giving money to the church. And in Luther's day, the Roman Catholic Church was building St. Peter's in Rome. Probably seen it. The church needed to raise lots of money. And one of the methods the church chose to raise lots of money for building St. Peter's back in the 1500s was by having a big push on the selling of indulgences. And they sent a Dominican friar by the name of Johann Tetzel to Germany. His job was to go around and sell these indulgences, which people would want to buy because the church made it very clear you don't want to go to purgatory for very long. And he went and he started raising money. But these were especially good indulgences because they gave you a full pardon. They were plen plenary indulgences, which meant you didn't have to go to purgatory at all. So you would do anything to give the money that was required to get one of these. The little jingle that would go is recorded in two ways. As Tetsu would go around, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Or as soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. And the thing that you'd do, you'd either do that for yourself so that you could get to heaven without going to purgatory, or if there was a loved one, your husband, you knew, was in the fires of purgatory and he had a thousand years still to go. You could actually buy one of these and the church would allow him to go to heaven faster. And what did Luther say? On October the 31st, 1517, he went to that door and he made it quite clear that purgatory, indulgences and the treasury of merit, he believed, were wrong made it clear the Bible doesn't go in that direction. And so he boldly nailed that. Remember, the Roman Catholic Church is the power. It's not just the denomination, it's the power across Europe. And he was essentially calling the Pope and everyone in authority in the Roman Catholic Church to repent. This is wrong. And what was the consequence? He was excommunicated. A warrant was put out for his arrest and people sought to put him to death. But what he did... Little things have been happening around Europe for a century or more already. But what Luther did started what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. Protestant from the word protest. They essentially got together and protested against the teaching of the church of Rome saying it's wrong. And the Reformation because they wanted the church to repent and be reformed, get back to the truth. So the Protestant Reformation got a significant push and essentially launched on October the 31st, 1517. And as I said, this is very relevant for us today. Very relevant because the Catholic Church still teaches these things. It's not as though that was something of the old Catholic Church. It's just we've forgotten. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, 20, 2005, Catechism number 211 says, how can we help the souls being purified in purgatory? And the answer, because of the communion of saints. 
the faithful who are still pilgrims on earth, that's you and me, are able to help the souls in purgatory by offering prayers and suffrage for them, especially the Eucharistic sacrifice, the Mass. They also help them by almsgiving, obtaining indulgences and doing works of penance. So you can help your loved ones. 2009, the Catholic Church intentionally re-emphasized the practice of offering indulgences. Partial to reduce time in purgatory by a day or days or a year or plenary, plenary were indulgences that meant you didn't have to go there at all, eliminate it altogether. And to obtain an indulgence, things aren't as severe today as they were back in Luther's day. In the middle, medieval ages, you would have to fast to live on bread and water for years or wear really coarse sack clothing and it was terrible. Today, it's a little bit cleaner and simpler. The Vatican's handbook of indulgence says you can obtain them by observing the stations of the cross, abstaining from pleasurable activities. The Pope or clergy may also declare certain special events worthy of an indulgence. It's a good way to get people to your event, such as World Catholic Youth Days. If the youth go to those, the Catholic Church, will they get an indulgence of some value to lessen their time in purgatory. So was Luther right? So our question this morning is, how is someone made righteous? How are we holy enough to get into heaven? Is there something in this of where we can obtain righteousness by our own efforts or the efforts of other saints or Mary or by giving monetary contributions, we or the need to go through a purging fire. Well, can we enter heaven as a gift, a free gift? And so we're going to look at th three things today that will appear. Don't worry about the small print, we'll go through that. And essentially there were five things that really came out of the Protestant Reformation as they went back and they saw what the Bible said. And they've written across the bottom, they're called the five solas. Sola means alone. And they were, we are saved by grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, through faith alone, according to the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. That's it. And so this morning, we're going to focus on those first three, grace, Christ, and faith. Because they really speak straight away to these things of indulgences, as they all do. And Luther in his day did something that we take for granted. With the Bible, he believed and knew it was the divinely inspired word of God. And he said, it's the only document the church has that's divinely inspired. Therefore, the Bible must be the authority. We take that for granted. But it wasn't. And so the reformers such as Martin Luther started reading the Bible and searching the Bible. And so firstly, the Bible teaches we are saved by grace alone. So have your Bible open. We're going to read a few passages, starting in Romans chapter 3. That's the first one, Romans 3 verse 23. So Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that's made righteous, by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God there says your justification, you being declared righteous, has been fully done. Because if God sees you as righteous, it means he sees you as if you had never sinned. And it makes it quite clear that's a gift. That God sees you as if you had never sinned comes as a gift. So your justification is a gift. It also says your redemption is a gift. When Christ went to the cross, he paid it in full. That payment resulted in your declaration of righteousness, which meant it was sufficient. And your atonement, dealing with the wrath of God, there's no more fiery wrath of God to endure because Christ took it all on the cross as a gift. Turn to Romans 11, 5 and 6. And I've got them, so we just keep moving in the same direction. Romans 11, 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, any works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Your election is by grace. Before the creation of the world, before you had done anything, God set his heart upon you to save you. Your works, there's nothing you can do will ever be counted towards you being saved. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 10. The grace in Bible study the other week, we considered grace because sometimes we really limit what God's grace actually affects. Whereas God's grace is vast in what it accomplishes and here in 1 Corinthians 15 10 Paul says but by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain on the contrary I worked harder than any of them though it was not I but the grace of God that is within me very speaking of his sanctification of being changed to be made like Jesus and he says that's the grace of God at work in me God is at work changing me. Yes, I'm making decisions each day, but in the end, it's God who's doing that in me graciously. And then we had the passage that Bryony read to us from Ephesians 2. And there we saw that being made spiritually alive again is by grace. You're either dead or alive. There's nothing in between. And for God to make us alive in Jesus, it's complete. There's nothing more to be done. And in Ephesians 2.8, we see, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Saved by faith. And that's not your doing. It's a gift of God. Not by work so that no one can boast. Even your very faith is a gift. God's gracious gift to you to see and receive Christ. And so that first truth there, we are saved by grace alone. There's no work you can contribute. There's no indulgence you need to buy. There is no saint who can contribute. Christ has done everything needed for us to be righteous in the sight of God, which means we can go straight to heaven, straight to be with the Lord. 
because God's grace is at work from eternity and election and in your justification and in your redemption and in your atonement, all those big words. There's a Collins CD that says words ending, big words that end in shin, where he sings through all those terms. Christ has done it all. Your regeneration coming to life again. Even your eternal bliss is all by the grace of God. No one's going to get any credit but God for your salvation. God gets all the glory. And that's why we end up with that last solo. God gets all the glory because he does it all. He makes it all at work in your life. Salvation is his work from beginning to end. And so Luther came to see as he was reading the Bible, we're saved by grace. What Texel is telling the people is a lie. What the church is doing is corrupt. We need to come back to the Bible. And the next thing, we're saved by grace alone in Christ alone on the basis of what he's done. Turn back to Romans. Romans 5 verse 17. And I'll read to verse 19. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, as in Adam's sin, so one act of righteousness... Christ's work leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So as an Adam, we all became sinners. By grace alone, on the basis of the work of Christ alone, we are all made righteous. It's reversed. New life, resurrection life, entry into heaven is all on account of what Christ alone has done. Being justified is all because Jesus paid the price in full. Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8, verse 1. And here's the good news. Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. No law keeping, no work, no act, no extra laws that the Roman Catholic Church comes up with will ever merit you anything. As soon as you look to do some of those things, you forsake Christ. But in Christ, we have it all. Two Corinthians five, a couple more on this one. 2 Corinthians 5. 
2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Through faith in Christ alone, God looks upon you and sees you as righteous, as if you had never sinned. Never lose that. Purgatory is where you go because you're not righteous yet. But in Christ, God sees us as righteous. Everything's taken away and cancelled. And what happens if we shift from Christ? Galatians 2.21. Galatians 2.21. If there is anything about the need for you to go to purgatory or that other saints could be so good as they've got excess or that Mary was without sin, so she's got excess, well, it makes the work of Jesus redundant. Galatians 2.21. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. As soon as you say there's a way to obtain righteousness through law-keeping, you nullify grace. You blow it up. Grace is a gift. As soon as you say, do, 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 or merit, it's no longer a gift. And you nullify the gospel. Galatians 5, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you, and this is to a people who are being tempted to move away from trusting, being, realizing they're saved by grace alone and Christ alone. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Because by circumcision, you're saying, look, I've done something. This is my contribution. As soon as you say my contribution, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. As soon as you go the way that you can merit your righteousness, your only hope is to be as perfect as Jesus. But that's a hopeless path to take. Christ has made us righteous. One more, Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says of Jesus, he entered once for all, once for all, done and dusted, into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The blood of Christ is of infinite value. The blood of Christ has made payment in full. And when Jesus went to the cross, he made payment in full. It's cancelled. The debts never reaccrue. Re he's paid it in full. He didn't just pay it for the next 500 years or the next 1,000 years. He's paid it in full. Nothing further is needed. Christ's work, Christ's life, Christ's blood, that is where it's all at. And so in that, the Son of God gets all the glory. As soon as you say, look what I've contributed, or thank you, Saint so-and-so, or thank you, Mary, God is not getting all the glory. 
But in Christ alone, we see the Bible says he gets all the glory because he did the full work on the cross. There is death and his resurrection. And the final and third truth is we are saved by grace alone on the basis of Christ's work alone through faith alone. It's faith. Let's start our journey again. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 3. Verse 28. Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justified means declared righteous, made holy, perfected for entry into heaven. And what does the Bible say? For we hold that one is justified, all that is accomplished by faith, apart from works of the law. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. If you go the way of Tetzel and the way of the Roman Catholic Church, heaven is your due. Because you're saying, I've done it. I've earned it. I've contributed. That's why it's important to understand the difference. The Roman Catholic Church will speak about grace, but it's different. It's the grace so as to start that journey and to do that. It's a very different understanding of grace. So it's important when you talk and you get your definitions clear because you'll be talking about different things. God's grace is the gift and by faith we receive the gift. As soon as we have to work or do things, Christ hasn't done it all. It's by faith. Romans chapter verse 1 therefore since we have been justified by faith we have present peace with God there's no more wrath no more fires to be purged in we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ Galatians 2 16 Again, the Bible says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed, put our faith in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And that's what we read in Ephesians. The verse that many people have memorized, for by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one can boast. We are God's workmanship. God's workmanship. Saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But once we saved, yes, we do good works because verse 10 of Ephesians says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so it's important you see a distinction there 
No works unto law keeping will save you. But once you are saved, God has saved us to do good works. They are different types of works. And so we don't have time this morning, but when you read the book of James, it's not talking about the law keeping type of works. It's talking about the other works that God has called us to do. And so James is consistent with everything we read. And so Martin Luther, 1517, October 31st, went and nailed his 95 theses to the door because he had read his Bible. God has turned the lights on and he clearly understood that salvation is by the grace of God alone on the basis of the work of Christ alone through faith alone. And where's all that come from? Scripture alone, because that is God's sole authority that is given us to the glory of God alone, because God gets all the credit and will receive all the glory. There is no place and it's nowhere in the Bible for people to be told that they'll go to purgatory and you can buy indulgences or any other, do any other thing so as to get to heaven. And so a few things for us to think this morning, I'll move through fairly quickly. Give thanks this Saturday and every day. Give thanks. We're a Baptist church. That means as we follow our history, we come out, we're a consequence of the Protestant Reformation. We take for granted grace alone, Christ alone, scripture and scripture alone. Don't take it for granted. Give thanks to God that he has enabled us to know this truth. So on Saturday, breakfast, lunch or dinner or somewhere in the day, just look up to God and say thank you for the great gospel that you have enabled me to be ready and fit and achieve all the holiness I need so as to go to heaven. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving me from before the creation of the world. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Secondly, read your Bible. How does the world end up in darkness? It shuts out the word of God. How does the Roman Catholic Church perpetuate darkness? It gets the Bible and it shuts it. And it comes up with the traditions of the church. But the Pope and the bishops and all their teachings have authority that stand over and against the scriptures. You shut your Bible, you will come to believe something else. And don't take for granted that you have a Bible holding here or we have them there. That's a consequence of this Reformation because Luther knew the Scripture alone. If I could give the Scriptures to the servant girl, if I could give the Scriptures to the guy who's working on the farm, if I could give it to the, the husband and the wife and the children, they can see this truth themselves. You're no longer captive to the Roman Catholic Church and their teachings. No one had a Bible. And if your church was lucky, your church had a Bible. Many churches didn't even have a Bible. And if you went to the church, it was probably chained. And if you went to read it, if you could read, it would be in Latin. And many of the guys at clergy that trained never even went near the Bible. The Bible was lost. And so one of the great things that Martin Luther did was translate the Bible into the vernacular, into the common language of the people. And we take it for granted. English, German, French. That's because of this, 1517. God got his word out again through the reformers. Thank God for the scriptures. Read it. 
Because it was as Luther read it, he was able to pick up the error. Don't just be swept along. Look to Christ alone. This morning, you can know with certainty he'll go into heaven. If your trust is in Jesus. You can know the moment you die, as Jesus said on the cross, you will be with me in paradise. You can know, as the Apostle Paul said, I long to be with the Lord, which is better by far. That's for everyone. There is no purgatory. Trust in Christ alone. He's done it all. And if you're not trusting in Christ, I urge you, come to him. Whoever calls on his name will be saved. God will see you as if you had never sinned. You will be holy, perfectly righteous. So trust in Christ alone. Keep looking to him. D, or number four, there, don't be deceived. As we keep our Bibles shut, we no longer have the canon or the measure by which to weigh up what is true and false. And we end up going with how we feel and what makes people happy. We don't like conflict. And so what happens is, many today, the same. What's the difference between us and the Catholic Church? We're all Christians. It's very telling when you, ask, when you say to a Catholic, I'm a Christian, they never say they're Christian. They say, I'm Catholic. The doctrine of the Catholic Church has not changed. In fact, it's worsened. A lot of the stuff to do with Mary wasn't there in the days of Luther. The official doctrine of the Catholic Church, I'll read this, came out of the Council of Trent. Canon 24. If anyone saith that the justice, righteousness, received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but they say that the said works are merely the fruit and the signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase, let them be anathema. Let them be cursed. Catholic doctrine says to us, you be cursed. Canon 30, there's a number of them, I've just picked out two. If anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment still to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened, let them be anathema. The thought that we can be saved by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone, if you hold to that teaching, the, Catholic, the official doctrine of the Catholic Church says you be cursed. We've got to have our Bibles open so that we're not deceived. Which means pray. And in particular, pray for your Catholic friends. We're to love them. But pray that they might read the Bible. Places where there's Catholic churches and Bible studies of starters has been profound. As you read the Bible. Pray that the Holy Spirit will open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel as he did for Martin Luther. He was a monk. The gospel of the Catholic Church is a different gospel. It's a salvation by works, salvation where Christ hasn't done it all. The gospel of the Bible, Christ gets the glory. Mary, the saints, the Pope and the priests have no place. Pray for them. They might know the joy and the freedom. 
In the day of the Reformation, many, many, many people died for this. And not just the bold people like Martin Luther, but peasants and the simple people because they so loved the gospel, they would not recant on it. And they were burned or put to death. But this is important. Don't idolise the reformers. Young guys in particular can get really enamoured by the reformers and they're sort of focusing more on the reformers than on Christ or more on the doctrines than on Christ. Luther was not perfect. None of the people God has used have been perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect. Jacob was far from perfect. David wasn't perfect. So don't make the reformers your, hero, your idols. Focus on what they were wanting us to put our attention on, the doctrine, the teaching of the Bible, on Christ and his glory. And finally, have convictions. It's amazing today how we are encouraged not to have conviction. How we're just some so naturally just going with the flow. How we'll just sit and listen and that'll be enough. Well, things are happening and we just ignore it. Martin Luther was 34 years old when he went. I think it's a work of the devil, the way that we have been so tricked into what I see lately, the new, the 40s and the new 30s, the 30s and the new 20s, how that little progression has continued. We've got this love for perpetuating youthful, being free and just to live life to the full and not really have to grow up and take responsibility. But through the Bible, God has used people in their youth and men such as Martin Luther when he was still young and for our culture, is this someone in the early 30s, that's young. Have convictions. And how will you have conviction? You've got to be in the Bible. Martin Luther, his dad wanted him to be a lawyer. He wasn't that keen, but his dad insisted on it. Forced him to go, paid everything. He said, okay, dad, he went. He struggled through that. He finally dropped out. Then he was in the spiritual crisis, so he decided to be a monk, so as to go and learn God's stuff, even though it was wrong. His father was furious. He saw it as an utter waste of all that his father had put into his life. That law degree, that was a waste. All the money I'd spent trying to get you to do that. But God was taking Luther on a journey. And God was building him up. And he brought up a man who had conviction. He loved God. He loved his word. And at 34 years of age, was willing to stand up against the Pope was willing to stand up even if it meant losing his life. How much do you love these doctrines? How much do you love the gospel? How sure and certain of you that you would not let go of it? Have convictions. You go to Bible colleges today and it's quite common. Everything's sort of accepted. If anyone's too on anything, let's just calm him down. Have convictions. So next, this coming Saturday, take time to give thanks to God for the gospel. Read your Bible that you might know the glorious gospel. Put your faith in Christ alone, because that is the wonder of the gospel. Be in the word so you're not deceived to shape or ignore the gospel. Pray for people who you know are caught up in the false doctrines.
Focus on Christ, not on the men, whom, women whom God has used in history. And live with conviction. Martin Luther wrote a hymn. I'll read the first two verses of this hymn. And then I'll close in prayer. So here's a hymn 500 years old. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. A helper here amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man, capital M, the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Heavenly Father, please help us to look to Christ alone, the one who has accomplished everything, the one who will reign from age to age. Lord, open our eyes if there are things that we're compromising on or things that are unclear. Lord, help us to love those who are caught under false teaching and to be able to point them to the glories of Christ in the gospel. Father, help us to be men and women of conviction. Help us to be willing to stand faithfully and strong for the gospel in this generation. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to pass on the truth of the gospel to the next generation. And so, Lord Jesus, please, this Saturday coming, help us, Lord, to pray. Help us, Lord, to remember the world that's perishing. And Lord, we pray the day would come when you would pour out your grace and mercy upon this town, that men and women and boys and girls would give glory and worship Jesus, the one who was born into the world, who went to the cross, that we might be forgiven of our sin and made perfectly righteous and fit for heaven. To the praise and glory of your name. Amen.